In the first two seasons of our podcast, I chatted with Kate Leone, a journalist, single mom, and world traveler. Kate had never taken a self-defense course before, and we figured her questions were probably your questions too. So if you've been following along all along, thanks for listening. You can keep up with Kate on her podcast at RestoriaTherapy.com. For this season, it seemed like a good time to change things up a bit. And the new theme song you're hearing, by the way, is an excerpt from a song called Icarus Wish by Berlin punk trio Dead Sentries, who also happen to be my neighbors, and who are generously letting me use this track, which you can also find on Bandcamp. Anyway, I thought it was time to head out into the world, virtually speaking, and talk to other women and men in the universe of self-defense, self-empowerment, and martial arts. I'm talking to old friends, new acquaintances, and complete strangers. Yes, I do talk to strangers, because I can defend myself. But I might hang up on them, too. We'll see. So, if you've stuck with us so far, keep listening, keep learning, keep laughing. You never know who we're going to talk to next. Well, I do. Welcome to episode 48 of the Pretty Deadly Podcast. This week, I'm talking to Yasmin Guerin, founder of Negotiatress and the third member in my partnership with Rithika Punj for our workshops YRS Empowerment. Yasmin is a certified mediator with a master's in conflict research, management, and resolution, and holds a bachelor's degree in economics and another one in international relations. She's worked in the private and political sectors, as well as with NGOs. After almost a decade in the field of dialogue and negotiation, she launched Negotiatress, an initiative to encourage more women not only to negotiate more and better for ourselves, but to bring our much-needed voices into the male-dominated world of negotiation. Years ago, while I was still training Nimpo Taijutsu in Los Angeles, our school had a martial arts teaching and training exchange one weekend. We invited other martial artist groups to train with us, and we learned from their styles too. There was an Aikidoka, Sensei Paye, who was giving a seminar during that weekend. Sensei Paye was great. He was this tiny little guy standing there in the middle of the room, and some big guy would throw a punch at him. Sensei Paye would barely move, but with this smooth, fluid motion, the big guy who attacked him would suddenly find himself on the other side of the room, facing the wrong way, wondering how he got there. He'd turn himself around and attack again, and again, he'd end up clear across the room, not even sure how it happened. It was beautiful to watch. But at one point, Sensei Allen, one of the Nimpo teachers from my school, leaned over to me and said, you know, Sensei Pai is great, but I just have one problem. The other guy keeps coming back. I was kind of hung up on that too. In our martial art, we're taught the basic principle of crush out or one and done. We don't want to have to fight or defend a million times, and we're not really interested in even playing. Our goal is to make sure that when we're attacked, the attacker doesn't come back. So that's my approach to negotiation, which isn't much of a negotiation, actually. And that's how I met Yasmin. I had seen her workshops advertised on Facebook and thought it was time to maybe learn some new tools. To my delight, though, I found that Yasmin's approach to teaching negotiation is the same as Pretty Deadly's approach to self-defense. Taking stuff you already do and are already good at and reapplying it to new situations. In Yasmin's case, the boardroom. It's how I see these situations. And I think the day-to-day environment that we face in, in the workspace is absolutely a negotiation with our bosses, with our colleagues. And the reality we face is that costs are so high for things that we want to achieve that 
we end up doing things ourselves. And that means that means a lot of things. So maybe we can start by describing what that what's what's this hostile environment because it's so nuanced sometimes. It is nuanced. I'm also really interested in what you mean by the costs that that might be so high. But let's let's talk about the hostile mm-hmm. environment. I was I became a working adult in 1987. Mm. The world, in some ways, looked very different than it does today, especially in the workplace. Mm. And yet, it hasn't really changed at all. No, it hasn't. It's it's actually depressing to think about how little things have changed, especially since there's so much talk about women's empowerment, and it kind of feels like we did move forward, but the wage gap is still very much there. In fact, it's gotten worse because I think if it wasn't as common for women to work so much as they do today, so it w- at least we were we were kind of winning on one battle. So we weren't working as much. We were only maybe being stay-at-home moms or having like not as intense careers. And then we weren't being paid because we weren't doing work. But now women are both doing the work, they're they expected to also be mothers or spouses or whatever it is. So they're doing double or triple the work that they were doing in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But wages haven't caught up with that. And, mm-hmm. and the titles that they get, promotions that they get, haven't caught up with that. And that's quite a depressing reality. And I, I think it's... Most sectors are like that. So it's not even that you can say oh yeah, there's this one sector or one country in which women don't face hostile environments or there's no pay, pay gap anymore. The, I think the, the best countries for having not eliminated but reduced the pay gap are Iceland and Rwanda, I've recently heard. I didn't know about Rwanda. Iceland still has about a 10% pay gap. Mm-hmm. And that's with a female president and, and laws that are there to enforce that women are treated fairly. And Rwanda is a funny story because so many people died in the civil war in Rwanda, or so many men died in the war in Rwanda that there were just no men left to do any of the jobs that were there. So there's lots of female politicians and lots of women in all the different sectors of the economy so like all the men had to die for women to get better wages and better jobs and and work environments that are not as hostile to them which is quite quite morbid i think yeah well i mean it's similar to most of most of europe in world war ii yeah where men went off to war and there was nobody to make munitions except women yeah. So, yeah, I mean, war is in many ways great for women's progress. So that's a good reason if you really don't like feminism and yeah. don't believe women should have equal rights, then don't go to war. Because <laughs> yeah. every time you do, we, make, we take another step forward. 
yeah, yeah. Somebody should tell point. that to Putin. Yeah. And <laughs> and Bibi and Trump and Bolsonaro yeah. and all those guys. Yeah, they don't think about these things. <laughs> it's a it's it's the consequences of what happens when you when you create a toxic environment. I mean, what is more of a toxic environment than war? Yeah. But I think also in work environments, I mean, what I what I was referring to when I said that things haven't changed is I was talking more about sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Mm-hmm. That is, I haven't worked in an office in, in over 10 years, but from what I hear from other people and certainly from my own experiences, it just, it just hasn't changed. People yeah. do the craziest things. And it's it's so bizarre you know it's like really is that why why would you do that you know you it's 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 not like it's it's uncommon knowledge but that this is actually this this would be deemed sexual harassment there's a i don't know the sorry i i i mean i don't know that they would admit that they're actually doing that so no they would never admit it but yeah. they do know. They know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is we have it, it. There's a kind of like a. I do consulting occasionally mm-hmm. about sexual harassment in the workplace. And it, it, when I was doing some research to kind of put the my presentations together, it was interesting to see how much it costs a company to to be sued for sexual harassment charges. It's actually not enough to make anyone really curb their behavior. Mm-hmm. But what companies don't seem to recognize is that ongoing harassment and bullying and, and creating toxic environments produces trauma, stress, depression, mm-hmm. poor health, which that poor health, of course, directly gets translated to their health benefits, mm-hmm. to absenteeism, to lateness, to low productivity, to a mistrustful work environment, to uh, to a toxic work environment. So, so it's, it, yeah, so it's like, so what they're not seeing is, yeah, okay, fine, you know, executive XYZ, you know, got a little grabby at the Christmas party, and now all the female employees are angry, or the one female employee brought a sexual harassment lawsuit, fine, we'll settle it. She's gone, executive XYZ stays, mm-hmm. but we're not going to pay attention to what the repercussions of that are on the rest of the company. So I think that's a very good point. And it's also, I think part of the problem is that those nuances are hard to pick up. So it's much easier to look at things in the short term and say, like, I just need this problem to go away or to just get really annoyed at the person in front of you who's complaining because no one likes to hear complaints and not to understand the long-term repercussions of, of having a hostile environment. But it's not even, you know, the idea in an ideal world, it would be enough for people to say, this is unjust. So this is causing damage to my employees and therefore I should try and prevent it which just doesn't happen and we don't see that as a good enough interest. Like I'm ruining this woman's life or this woman's career. It's not a good enough reason to change things, but we don't even need that reason because like you're saying, it causes so much damage to companies 
to have a non-diverse environment. And this is, this is studies prove this across the board. You want to have diversity. Not only, you know, gender diversity, the whole, there's the whole discussion now about, about ethical diversity and just people from different backgrounds, different mm-hmm. economic backgrounds. They come with different ideas, different capabilities. You, you do see with, with companies that have more diversity that they reap more, more benefits. So income goes up, uh, profits go up, companies scale better. And, but it's, it's really hard to see that when you're stuck. It's funny what the mind can do. You're stuck in a world in which you truly believe that things are good the way they are. It's very easy when you're the dominant group. So if you're, you happen to be a white Western male who's from a very privileged background, it really, any shift in that reality that you already know seems like senseless chatter. It threatens, it threatens the reality that you know is a good one. Um, right. But I, what I think is interesting is that so often that reality is presented as the only reality. And mm-hmm. what, what, what seems to be kind of missing on their, their radar is mm-hmm. that it, you create a toxic environment for all the women in your company or for all the people of color in your company or, mm-hmm. for, or maybe both groups or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And you do that specifically to get them to leave because you don't want them there. So, if you, so going back to what we were talking about regarding war, in the 1940s, when the United States went to war, as happened in many other countries, women, of course, then went into factories to build munitions and planes and, and basically take over all the jobs that were no longer filled with men because they were overseas fighting. Mm-hmm. So when men came back from the war, women, some women were happy to go back and care for families and and homes and do the things they were doing before the war, some women really enjoyed going to work and they wanted to continue going to work and men didn't want them in that environment. So when we were talking about this before, the show Mad Men kind of popped into my mind, which is a show I've never actually seen, but because I just don't like to watch TV very much, but Mm -hmm. I knew enough about it from pop culture, you know, and of course there's, you know, there's a lot of you know, sort of swinging sexuality and and abuse of power and all this kinds of stuff. And of course, in the 1950s, that was rampant in an office space because you're trying to actually get rid of the women. Mm -hmm. Get rid of them. We don't want them here. Let's make a toxic environment. You know, okay, answer the phones. But other than that, get out of here. Because you should gain any kind of status or right. power and, in the workplace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So because the workplace is ours and, you know, we want you to go away. So mm-hmm. it's not so much even a matter of, I think, abusing power and, you know, power and sexuality and how all we think we think those things always go together. I think it's more of if I make this really unpleasant for you, you will quit. And when you quit, that's obviously beneficial to me because then I don't have to pay unemployment. And I don't think that existed in the U.S. in the 1950s. But nonetheless, Mm -hmm. I don't have to deal with all those things because you quit. 
you're going to yeah. go away and work someplace else. Now I've got, maybe you've succeeded in doing this in your company. And now you've got a company that's almost all men. Mm -hmm. Woohoo. You can be as disgusting. You can, you can fart. You can belch. You can work late. You can dress like slobs. You can make jokes. You can do whatever you want as long as you're doing your work and you're mm -hmm. acting as a team and everything's great. But what you're not seeing is that all the people that you got rid of go and form their own communities and yeah. they go and form their own ecosystems and their own economies that mm -hmm. you are not privy to. So going back to what I said before about the belief that there's, this only, there's only this one reality mm -hmm. that, that men in privileged positions have created for themselves and are completely clueless to the fact that actually there's a lot of other very thriving communities that don't miss those guys. Yeah. That are benefiting from being with so each there's, other. There's a lot going on outside their tiny, tiny world. Yeah, and it's a, it's just it's a fascinating thing because it's like why would you why would you not think that? And why would you not why would you not want to be a part of it? And I was you and I were talking about this recently and I was saying like I noticed on Facebook there's groups that are for only women mm -hmm. and some of those groups are just to sell stuff to each other because we get so harassed by men mm -hmm. you know I want to sell a, a painting you know that I've had in my living room and I just don't want it there anymore I put that on regular Facebook or something like Craigslist and I get you know 300 dick pics yeah and maybe one woman who says I might be interested yeah. But then it turns out to be a guy who shows up at your doorstep and you're like, and tries to push us. I mean, it's like, it's such a horrible environment. So we've created these women's only groups just to sell stuff to each other. And we sell stuff to each other favorably. Yeah. You know, really like at better prices. So that painting that some guy may really, really, really want, he's never going to have access to it because that environment is toxic. I only want to sell it to this other environment. And then you end up in these weird, like, sub-economies, sub you know, sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-economies. Yeah. Because obviously if that exists only for women, then it certainly exists only for people of color, only for trans people, only for people in the LGBTQI community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, definitely these sub-economies exist, and they're, they, they're thriving because people will eventually find ways of getting what they, they need. Women are actually great at networking. I love networking with women because we're so communicative and we put aside so much crap that often, like if you've been in a meeting room with only men, and I've, I've had this before in my, my work environments where I was the only woman in, a, in an all-male meeting room and, oh God, you know, so much time is wasted on ego and dominance battles and you know people wanting to forward their ideas and impress the ceo and whatever and women do this too they just don't do it to that extent so you network with women and you work with women and it's just all about getting stuff done and you know achieving our goals and there's a very different mentality to it and i by the way i think it it has a lot to do with the fact that we know that if we want to get something, we just have to do it ourselves. So there's a lot of benefit in these 
in these sub-economies that form, there's right. there's a lot of value being created there that you're right, that, that say the chauvinistic male world doesn't have access to and they won't have access to until they make it agreeable, agreeable enough for women to want to share those things with them. But on the other hand, I, I can't have a feeling that it's like, it's like a loser's consolation prize in a, in a way, uh, prize. Because at the end of the day, there's still, given that the most powerful positions, the highest ranking jobs, the highest salaries, they still are all paid to men. And there's still, I don't know, like if you're looking at NBA teams, if you look at the salaries that the women make and the salaries that the men make, yeah, you know, like we're in the NBA, we're women, we have our teams. They're not making the same amount of money. If you look at the exposure that people get to their ideas, I'll go back to the negotiation world. All the books, all the books are written by men. All the pop culture books, they sell millions of copies of books. And I'm sure there are women who have written about negotiation. Mm -hmm. It's not non-existent, but I've never heard of them. And actively trying to find their, their books, I've been unsuccessful. And it's not because their ideas about negotiation aren't as good. It's not because they themselves are not good at negotiation. I think there's so much that men can learn from women about negotiating because we're, that's, that's a skill we need to survive. We're not going to beat anyone up into giving us what we want. We have to learn to convince. And yet we're not going to make that money. We're not going to be that famous. So, so we do have our sub economies, right. but we're missing out on, on the big chunk on where the real money is. And not only I'm, I'm saying money, but it's, it's all the value. It's the recognition. It's the, the, the you know like the development the just everything that you get out of being in the mainstream which is it's nice to be alternative and I think there's a lot of value in being alternative and non-mainstream but you're missing out on a lot of value and benefits out of the convenience of just being part of it of the mainstream which I do really find I find it troublesome and I, I also am myself torn about what's the right thing to do, you know, like, is it... If in the past, the idea was, well, be more like a man so that you'll be accepted into, into male society. You want to be a CEO? Just try five times as hard. Make sure that you make connections with the right people, be tougher, be, you know, wear a power suit or whatever kind of cliché. And then well, to their club. Right. I mean, can I can I jump in? Yeah, sure. I yeah, it's that I, I mean, I remember this very much from the 80s with women. I mean, there was the now I can't remember the name of that stupid movie from the 80s. No, I can't remember it. But the the idea that women act like men in the boardroom, you know, we started wearing power suits with really big shoulders so that we could look like men and being strident and aggressive and and you know being one of the guys and even going out for drinks and you know whatever just kind of 
matching them shot for shot, suit for suit, you know, behavior for behavior. It, it, it was really rough to see. And one of the, the lawyers that I worked for in the second law firm I worked in in L.A. was totally like this. This is she, We were about the same age. That's pretty much how she was groomed. You want to be a partner in a law firm? Act like a guy. And that's what she did. She was really, really, really hard to love. <laughs> she was just a hard person to get along with and like because she was, because even in that arena, she had to be, she had to act more like a guy than a guy. Like and even at being guys, we have to be better. We have to be better. Just to and get also, the same. Yeah, we're also the punished. same. Uh, the same basic stuff. It's crazy. Yeah. So and we're I, punished. Yeah, we're also very punished. That's that's what I call the double-edged sword in my workshops. Is that it's that. Whatever we do, we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. So if you try acting like a guy to get where you need to go, you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be called a bitch. You still won't get, you might get more than you would have not, not adopting that behavior, but you still won't get as much mm -hmm. as, as the men do. And there's this whole, um, there's a really interesting discussion about this idea of not like other girls where women actually try to set themselves apart it's kind of, it's like high school like women try to set themselves apart from the dorky uncool group so that they're accepted into the the cool group of the guys so they they basically bring down other women they talk shit about other women they make it sound like i'm you know i can join your club because i'm not like other girls so that makes the situation even worse because it, you have to bury your allies or you have to bury your, you know, right. you see women as being able to elevate each other rather than bring each other down. That's like, that's a fee that this club is charging you. If you want to be with us, you have to make it very clear that other women are shit. So you have to make it clear that women as a definition are not as smart, not as good, not as capable. And you will be kind of our like our token, a token woman to say like, look, we we accept women that are that are as good as us. It's just that women right. all suck. Like, I do think that that these subcultures can help because there we can really be ourselves. And that's what I try to do in my workshops is to teach women to negotiate as themselves because that's really good and that's good enough. Whatever kind of woman you are whatever kind of a human you are, you are good enough to take your own value and your own strength and use that to negotiate or find your way in the world. Kind of in, in order to counter this huge pressure that we face to admit openly, to like, to say, we acknowledge that being a woman is not good enough. We're playing your game or we're playing by your rules because we understand that that's what the mainstream requires. I don't think it's easy. I don't think it's easy and I don't think that it means we're going to get as much as men do at the moment or that any dominant group gets at the moment. But at least it's putting it's setting a boundary. It's saying stop. I'm not I'm not playing by your rules. I'm I'm doing my own thing and my own thing is good enough. 
Right, I agree with you. I think what you're saying about the mainstream is really interesting to me because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's something that, for me, over the course of my life, I've always been really disdainful of. The mainstream never interested in me. But you're right, there's a world of convenience. It's, it's, it's convenient. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, you're, you're about 20 years younger than I am, but there's still enough shared experience and the world hasn't changed so much that growing up, the, we can say that the mainstream has been pretty much controlled by men who have been the people in power. But one of the consequences, I think, of our digital age is that there really isn't so much of a mainstream, a single mainstream anymore. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of companies and a lot of marketers who are trying to convince us that there's a mainstream. Mm-hmm. But especially in, in, in the aftermath or in the ongoing situation of the coronavirus, I think we can all kind of see that whatever the mainstream was is pretty much falling apart. That's true. And I much, do much think harder. that it's, it's, I'm all for saying like, great, you know, we're going to go over here and create our, our thing and fund it ourselves and pay ourselves what it's worth and, and make it really fantastic. And if you want to join us, then maybe we're open to that too. Mm-hmm. But if you join us, then it's not about us being as good as you, it's about you being as good as us. Mm-hmm. That also requires a pretty big shift in structural thinking. Yeah. That requires a letting go of a pyramidical structure and, and the hierarchies that we've all been living with under patriarchal systems that, you know, they're, they're, they're what I call open-loop controllers, and which means that they don't take feedback. They just put stuff out in the world and accept, and just expect everyone to accept it, and then you just keep putting out whatever you want to put out, mm-hmm. regardless of effects or feedback or consequences or anything. And women have a tendency to... We're very socialized to operate in closed loop systems that require feedback so that we can improve every single, every single time around in every iteration of whatever it is that we're doing. And I think as these structures are beginning to fall apart and the mainstream is, is dividing into many, many different streams. It's definitely much harder. Oh, sorry. These Go types ahead. of closed loop systems are more the way forward than the previous open loop controls. I love these terms so much. They're from engineering. I think they sound cool. But they also make a lot of sense. So I do, I totally agree that it's, I mean, one way to deal with it, and it's the way that we are dealing with it as women, is to say, screw it, I'll do it myself. I'll do my own thing and you know, it's going to be so good that you're going to wish you had joined. It's painful for me, or let's say, I'm going to say it's the challenge there for me is that I would like women to find a way not to just do everything themselves, but to get to that point which you're describing in which you say, I am so good. You want to be in my club. It's not, okay, you rejected me. I'll do my own thing. It's, 
I've created something of such high quality that it's worth you wanting to join me. And the reason I'm saying that is because there's a big problem with this, screw it, I'll do it myself. And it goes back to the high prices I was talking about at the beginning. What I mean by when someone charges you a high price. When you have a colleague and you're supposed to work together on a project and the work that they do is so crap, and sometimes that's a tactic, being so mediocre that people just say, okay, I'll do, I'll do all the work myself because I want it to be quality and you're not going to provide it. That's a price you pay. You should be sharing that work. So if you, and these are Yes, I know that tactic. And it's, it's, it's so nuanced sometimes that it takes a while for you to tally up the amount of things you take upon yourself, which is basically covering up or taking, you know, taking, what's the word? Picking up the slack. I don't know why I forgot that phrase. So picking up the slack for someone else to try and get an outcome that that is beneficial in the end, but you've paid no, such actually, a high price I for. Think, I, I think we, we I, I'm just going to jump in because I think this is a really important point. To me, language is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And when we say picking up the slack that makes it sound like we're a team. You know, mm-hmm. I'm picking up the slack. You can't do it today because you have a cold, so I'm going to pick up your slack and we'll get through it together. But what you're talking about in that nuance of just doing work that's such crap, it's not mm-hmm. picking up the slack. I think the, the term that you used by mistake is actually the more correct term. It is covering up. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting you to cover up for me for my lack of work, for my for the fact that I didn't hold up my end. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the teamwork. I slacked off, but you're not picking up my slack. You're covering you're covering for me. Yeah. Yeah. So if you know to use a metaphor of what it would if we're talking about being at the table or being allowed a place at the table, it in in a hostile work environment, it's so hard for a woman to be given a place at the table that she might say, screw it, I'm going to build my own table. But building your own table costs a lot. It takes a lot of time and resources. And that's something that you've been forced Mm -hmm. to do. And it's very different if you say, you know what, I'm going to build my own table and it's going to reap lots of profits. And if you want to come to my table, you're going to have to make a huge effort. I'm not just going to share the, the fruits of my table with you. And I, I'm not sure that it's always possible. It takes so many resources. It takes so much mental strength to reach a situation in which you're not just exhausted by the constant need to try and build your own table, so to speak. That it, it's, I wish I could say, you know, let's just do that. Let's build our own tables. I just feel that there's a very high price to that sometimes that we're still paying. And it's a challenge that I myself am still struggling with of how do I create enough value without paying such a high price for having had to make that choice? Right. I think it's a struggle that we that we all have, you know? I mean, that's really what it what it boils down to. It's kind of I mean, it's about value and valuation and and 
how much effort do I put into something? What are the benefits that I reap? Does it outweigh the effort? It does it not. And and if I can't if I can't benefit from the work that I put into the table that you're building, then why would I why would I invest that work? But if it takes me three or four times as much effort to build my own table, then why would I invest in that work? So what do we do instead? Like build a bench? I don't think that that's the answer either. I think that I think that there's a third way and I think that there's a fourth way. I think there's a fifth and a sixth and a seventh way probably, but I don't exactly know what they are. I know for me my response has always been if you're not going to help me or if you're going to make it a really toxic environment for me, I leave. I leave and I'll go do it myself where I'm not going to be bothered and I can create what I want. That worked to a certain point in my life and then it stopped working because I don't always have the skills. For instance, I have a a beautiful set of bookshelves in my home. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go learn how to use an electric saw, a meter, uh whatever all the crap you have to learn, not crap, it's all you know valuable work to mm-hmm. build a bookshelf for the bookshelf that I saw in my mind. So I needed to find someone that I could communicate with to make sure that I got what I wanted, who mm-hmm. wasn't going to push back and just give me what they thought I wanted or what they thought I should have, or what it boils down to usually in the workplace, what they think I deserve. Mm-hmm. That was a lot for me to go through to figure out how to communicate to the person that I hired to build the bookcase, how to communicate to them in a way that was non-threatening, wasn't too taxing on me, but at the same time was going to get me the results that I wanted. That required an enormous amount of finesse and more patience than I realized that I had. This was worth it to me, but I don't know if everything is, and I don't think that everything needs to go through this, this process. I mean, this was also, obviously, that's not my career. I didn't need the bookcase in order to advance my business. I mean... But we do, we do spend so much of the day. I did, in case the finansant is listening. I did. <laughs> but in general, it's not, it's not my... Um, I'm not making money directly off of the bookcase. I'm not but supporting we... myself directly off of the bookcase. But, yeah, it's, it's a lot. How do we do it? What is what is the compromise and why are we the only ones compromising? Why is there not an effort on the other side, the people who are in power, the people who, who do have all the money and, and the positions and this and that, why aren't they compromising? Why do they not feel that they need to reach at least 50% to meet us where we are instead of maybe 5% and then we go 95 well, why so is that? Why why is that not valued and balanced in a way that actually is better for everybody? Well, I don't think anyone likes to relinquish power. So, you know, you have to be a really great person. And there are very few of those in history who have said, I understand this situation is, um, is unjust and we're going to change it. It has to come from the oppressed. And that, in a way, that's a burden we're going to have that's not going to go away. 
we're going to pay a high price. We are going to have to either make, like, even if we do fight for our rights, we're going to have to pay an extra price of making the effort to try and change things. I do think you've pinpointed something that's very accurate, which is it has to change. Reality has to change. We can't just keep making an extra effort to make our way around how reality is at the moment. And that means demanding demanding that things change. And it's really chipping away at this huge wall. You know, women have been chipping away at this wall for centuries, thousands of years. In a way, this is the best time to be a woman. There's never been a better time to fight for your rights as a woman than now. Um, but at the end of the day, we're still fighting. I don't know, Yasmin. I mean, the suffragettes might have said the same thing. And they were probably right, by the way, because and that you know, was a we're, long time ago. We're we're moving. We are moving forward, and you know, the rights that we have as women now have been. I I'm so thankful to the thousands and thousands of women who lived their lives, who who were born and who died, with not a not a tenth of the rights that I have as a woman. It's scary to think, you know, we might live and die and never live to see us being treated as equal. It's kind of, it's, it's a painful thought to have. But at least we will have moved forward. So at least we'll have promoted, you know, at yes, least my yes. kids will be able to say, well, you know, this is the oppression my parents' generation went through. And, and I, I can be the president of something. I can be a CEO, I can be much, much more than my grandparents or great-grandparents could achieve in their lives. So I, I do have some hope still. I think, I, I agree with you in large part, but I also believe that one of the things that we as oppressed people, whether it's women or people of color or anyone who is at a disadvantage versus the people in power have always done for the past 2,000 or more years is we're always working within the exact same definitions of power and oppression. And I think one of the keys to making these changes a little deeper and a little more profound and lasting is to redefine what is power, redefine what Oppression is oppression. It's kind of hard to redefine that. But what is power? It, right now, power has a very specific definition. And yeah, you're right. People in power don't like to relinquish it because, as you say in your workshops, you know, you like to you use the word zero sum game, which is a phrase I really like. And right now, that's the definition of power. It's zero sum. I have all of it, or I have none. Maybe I have a little, but whatever I have, I can't share with you. I can't relinquish. But I think if we redefine power as something a little more holistic, as something more organic, as something that has a network of roots that spread out all over the place, mm-hmm. as opposed to it being centralized in a single person or thing or, or, or place or mm-hmm. government, then that might help us also start to reconstruct these realities and mainstreams and, and work environments and politics and all the things that we're talking about. I, I, I feel that as long as both parties or all parties 
continue to define power only in this one way, mm-hmm. then power will always be something that will be desirable to achieve because it's always rare. Yeah. But when we look at power in a more holistic way, then, yeah, you can share it. You can give it away. The way that I look at power from a martial arts perspective, I can give all my power away, and I'm still going to have power. I share mm-hmm. my power by teaching. I share my power by training. It doesn't diminish my power. It actually increases it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's shifting some of this thinking around that also may be one of the keys that we need if we want to really make lasting change. Yeah, and that's that's a different way of thinking, right? I mean, it's I think it's a very accurate way of thinking, and it also portrays, let's say, it's much more sustainable than the thought that you constantly have to be battling for to be the to have the upper hand. And one of the main problems, I think, in for women or for anyone who is not in that mainstream group, is to gain enough confidence in understanding that. That way that we see the world has a lot of value because once right. you're at least my experience is that when I, when I know that there's value in what I have to say and in the way I see things in, I see that if I go into a negotiation with my mind frame, which is more feminine, uh, more flexible, more, there's so many traits that we bring into negotiation as women and I see it's more effective. But I, I also feel confident enough to tell other people who don't see that yet, no, actually, you know, I'm very happy with how I negotiate. I think I do very well. You know, I insist, even though you're kind of making a mockery or you have the habit of, of denigrating my methods of negotiation, at the end of the day, I provide the results. So I have that confidence in myself, which we're so often lacking as women. It does eventually change people's opinions. I've seen a lot of responsiveness to that in men also. You know, men in high tech, men in in 90% male controlled boards and and management going, well, you know, she's so confident in it. Maybe there is something that we can learn from her. That is that's, you know, it's one foot forward every time, but it does change things mm-hmm. when we gain that confidence in ourselves. And there's also, there's so much effort to convince us not to have that confidence that, you know, it's... Yes. This is a subject for another episode, mm-hmm. that, that effort that goes into convincing us to not have that confidence, that belief that you can only learn so much from a woman, mm-hmm. but when you really, really want to learn something, you still have to default to a man. Mm-hmm. Those two things go very much hand in hand in my experience. Yeah. I don't judge any woman who hasn't reached that level of confidence in herself because she faces torrents of of remarks and comments every day aimed at making her feel a lack of confidence. I think the most valuable lesson I learned from Yasmin is that negotiation is not a zero-sum game. It's more about both sides having something valuable to offer, but together can be even better. And then finding the best way to fit those two sides together to make something new, a whole that's greater than its parts. 
It's a much more holistic form of negotiation based more on community building than it is on winning or dominating, which I think is way more relevant in this particular time in history. You can find out more about Yasmin's work and her workshops and online classes at her website, womentheworkshop.com. Pretty Deadly Self-Defense is a self-defense program based in Berlin, but with coaches and trainers in a growing number of cities in Europe and around the world. If you want to join us just to take a course or to become a coach, a trainer, or even offer Pretty Deadly in your school or studio, let us know through our website at prettydeadlyselfdefense.com or find us through our app. Just search for Pretty Deadly Self-Defense in your favorite app store and download for free. And remember that all of our paid programs fund our volunteer work. So when you empower yourself, you're actually empowering another woman, too. Thanks for being here. I'm Susie Kollek, and you've been listening to the Pretty Deadly Podcast. See you next week.